What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artist of Data Science happy hour number 56, I believe this is. 56 happy hours in a row, man. We've been out here just dishing out wonderful information and helping people out. Shout out to everybody in the room. Christian is back. Good to see you again, Christian. Good to see you indeed. Eric, what's going on with the 3D glasses? Man, he's in the building. Gina, good to see you. Monica Royal is in the building too. Hopefully you guys had a good, good week. Uh, hopefully you got a chance to tune into the episode I released today with the one and only legendary Andy Hunt. He is co-author of The Pragmatic Programmer and many, many other books as well. I've been going live a lot. Uh, this week I went live. I went live with Danny Ma yesterday. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. I went live with another legendary person, an Oxford professor, uh, Marcus Dusotoy. Uh, he's written The Creativity Code. Uh, music of the primes. He's written this. The newest book is called Thinking Better. So I had a great opportunity to chat with uh, with him. We talked a lot about just kind of his philosophy of mathematics and what he loves about mathematics and, and creativity and things like that. It was a really great conversation. I really enjoyed it. He was also kind enough to introduce me to Dr. David Spiegelhalter. So hopefully I can get Dr. David Spiegelhalter on the show. Uh, he wrote the book The Art of Statistics: How to Learn from Data. Um, he's that's right, Cambridge. Look at this shit. Look, look at me, kid from the street, Sacramento, California, from the hood, and I'm I'm talking with Oxford professors. Like that's mind-boggling, man. That is that. It's pretty cool. Um, what else did I do? I, I spoke to Daliana Lou this week. We did not go live though. Uh, we we just chatted a little bit, and that will be released at some point in the future. Um, so looking forward to releasing that for y'all. And um, yeah, man. Hopefully you guys are excited for the weekend. Man, it's this entire month I went, I counted. I, I was uh, live over 20 times, uh, over 20 times, including, you know, presenting at Dedicated, presenting at ODSC twice, and uh, the house list at Comet. Just going live, man. It's been one hell of a month. Uh, hope you guys are excited for Halloween. Uh, I, for one, am indifferent to that. Uh, but I like seeing little cute kids in their costumes. So, That'll be a lot of fun. And, you know, we're going to dress my son up like a, uh, like a cow. Sounds crazy, man. I went to go try to put him to bed earlier today, and he was just screaming, screaming. I had to drive over to the in-law's house to try to put him to sleep, and he screamed so much that he vomited. And he vomited uh, all over me. That kid is insane. Uh, say kids they have. It'll be fun. It's not. I know it is. It's, it's awesome. I, I love that kid. Uh, but, yes, uh, hopefully you guys are excited to be here uh if you have questions go ahead and let me know drop your questions in the chat i see you all enjoying on uh linkedin and on youtube so i want to kick this thing off i made a post just a little bit earlier today a couple hours ago just you know thought i might trigger some people and you know kick off a discussion uh and that post was data engineering is the most important part of data science I want to get your reactions to that statement. Uh, I used that. I used a meme taking a page out of uh, Danny's book. I used uh, that, uh, you know, was it changed my mind meme? Uh, so, yeah. So, is data engineering the most important part of data science? Oh, I would love to hear what you guys think. Uh, let's start with, um, start with, start with Christian, man. It's been a while since we, uh, since we heard from you. And then uh, we can go to uh, Eric and then Matt Blaza is in the building. And if you guys got questions on anything whatsoever, please do let me know if you guys got questions. Uh, I will gladly take them. 
Christian, go for it. Yeah, no, I just I saw that uh, I saw that post right before I jumped in, and I was it'll be a good discussion right there. I'm actually interested to hear from folks who are sitting in the seat right now doing, it and interested to hear from Eric and some of these other guys on whether or not that's true. I mean, from my standpoint, you know, there's one thing that I've heard several times, and it's like, hey, if you are just doing stuff standalone in Python notebooks and with clean curated data sets, you really you haven't gotten down to the arena yet, right? Um, so being able to have that data at your fingertips seems pretty crucial. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to hearing answers, Eric. You're you're in the battlefield. What do you what do you think, Eric? Let's hear from you. Yeah. So my first thought was, oh heck yeah! Like I am grateful every day that I'm not a data engineer, but I'm also grateful every day that someone is, uh, because it's work that I, I personally I don't get jazzed about it. Sometimes I like get jazzed about little pieces of it. Um, but then I think I'm going to read about data engineering and I get like one paragraph into a blog post and I'm falling asleep. So it's just not, I just don't get excited about it, but I know it's super important because anytime I want to like make a cool change or something in my work, it comes down to some pipeline somewhere needs to be adjusted. And so I know it's super important. On the other hand though, as I tried to, think about whether or not it's really the foundation you i think that you can kind of quote unquote you can outsource some data engineering on a small scale because you know a few a few months ago um my partner and i were working on a small project for like a, a nonprofit, and they're small they're not big they don't have a data engineer they don't they only have like two employees right but they have various services and things like that that they're subscribed to and we're able to bring data together manually from different sources to get real business results like make change but we didn't necessarily need a data engineer in order to facilitate any of that happening so i just think that it's just like i think it's just with scale um, it does really become foundational but if you're doing something on a small scale never underestimate the power of uh, you know one person with willpower and uh, you know enough enough time to figure it out. Eric, thank you so much. Let's go to uh, let's go to Monica, and then after Monica, we will go to Matt Blaza. First of all, I just want to say that I think I'm way too overly excited for Halloween. I <laughs> love it. I absolutely love it. <laughs> Is that uh, you? Got you got to break this down for us. I, I don't immediately get that. Is that Albert Einstein? So I'm a data scientist. Ah, <laughs> a mad scientist. I love it. Not creative, I love it. <laughs> but also like the most dressed up, I think. So I was like, should I turn on my camera? <laughs> I, love I was it. afraid I, I was going to be underdressed. So I'm glad that somebody dressed up. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Always. This is my favorite holiday. Okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. I dressed up as a 90s grunge kid. Nice. I love it. <laughs> um completely agree with everything Eric said. Um, very much important when uh, you're scaling. You're in a small environment where you can directly connect to a database and write some SQL queries to pull your own data. Then um, I've done that in the past where I'm very much, you know, beginning to end uh, through the process. But in my newest role, we have dedicated data engineers and I'm finding it very fascinating um, and am very grateful for them to be able to do that work for us. Um, and without data, I mean, where would it be? So yeah, they're very, very important. Absolutely love that. Uh, Matt, are you still there? Yes, you are. Matt, go for 1.21 data. I love that. Yeah, no, 
Yeah, no, like, I mean, for data engineering, super, super important. I, I just spent all the time before just playing around with just Python saying, okay, I'm just going to create a model and that's it. But the more I've like worked with data engineers over the last three, three years or so, I'm starting to find out, hey, you need to know it's garbage in, garbage out. I mean, if you don't have that data engineer working on that pipeline, you don't know if the inputs that you're putting into that machine learning model are actually even worth, are even accurate. So they, they have to make sure that the pipeline's processing. They have to make sure that the, that, that the lineage is correct because not every data that you're pulling in from one table is the original data. That data in that table could be pulled from like three other tables. And usually even as a data governance analyst, you still have to ask them, they know better than you, what transformations are going through and what exactly, uh, exactly how that's being anonymized because there's batching and all this other stuff that's even being done in the pipeline. So it's, it, it's very important that data engineering is there. And if you can, I mean, you need to at least have a sense of it to be able to communicate with them, which mm -hmm. is why I still do my own pipelines on the side so I can communicate with them and know what they're talking about. And they don't look at me with the question mark on their face. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, uh, definitely want to hear from uh, Christian as well. Uh, before we get there, though, like th that's kind of my standpoint. I, I feel like as data scientists, as people who are actually building the models and stuff like that, we're actually downstream consumers of data. So we we use data. Um, so it's highly, highly imperative for us that we have some, it, you know, there's the real world and we capture information in the real world in the form of data. That data goes through transformations, but the, that, that, that there needs to be quality checks in place for the data. We need to be able to ensure that it's what we expect. And not only that, those data pipelines need to be robust enough to handle a wide variety of situations. Um, yeah, data engineering is, uh, I think I came to this realization after just um, working with curated data sets for the last like couple of weeks, just because now I just do machine learning all day, just building models. Um, but Christian, let's hear from you. I was just listening to this and I totally agree with the you know, importance of, of having that data stream and everything. But I guess I was wondering at, at the risk of being overly pedantic, uh, you know, the most important part, um, you know, I'm a business guy, maybe more strategic minded. Do you think it would actually be, or maybe, maybe this is what I'm saying is where I stand is maybe it's actually the strategic and outcome orientation of step one of why and what levers are we pulling? Otherwise, I might have the greatest data and I might have the greatest data scientist, but who gives a crap because I'm solving the wrong problem? Yeah, I mean, but if I, if I would have said that, I wouldn't have triggered anyone. They would just right. <laughs> <laughs> as an overly pedantic, but uh, yeah. maybe that's where no, I stand. No, that's absolutely true, though, man. Absolutely true. <clears throat> uh, Marina, I would love to hear from you. I guess the, the I don't know if you've missed the, 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 the question, but I was just making a, a statement trying to trigger people and trying to get a conversation going that. Uh, data engineering is the most important part of data science. I would love to get your uh, your, your input on that. By the way, everybody uh, in the chat, everybody watching YouTube, LinkedIn, if you guys have questions, please do let me know. I will uh, add you to the queue. Come again. What was the question? Yeah, I, I just joined. Yeah, the question was that uh, I, I just wanted to get people's reaction to the statement that I made, which is data engineering is the most important part of data science. Um, I may have to agree with that. Mm. I, you know, I think there is a, a meme, you know, that has, yeah, I don't even know the name in English, um, um, like about data lake and, you know, like I think data scientists, we, we are on, like we ride on top of data engineering. If that pipeline is not in place, it's not, 
you know, it's, it's just it's very, very hard to do um, any good work. Um, you always have to check with them, right? Uh, but again, you know, like what um, Christian said, I, I agree, you, you know, you have to have the right um, question to answer, like, you know, everything has to be accordingly to the outcome that you need in terms of like a product or a business or I, I totally agree with that. But but I again I think data engineering is um yeah I, I was trying to <laughs> not say yeah. anything. No, no, we are the best. No, no, I think not. Yeah. I think data engineering is extremely <laughs> is extremely relevant. Sometimes we take it from granted. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Russell, I would love to hear from you and then after Russell we'll go to uh, Manny after that. I'm not sure if Russell's campus frozen. Nope. Yeah, no, I think I'm on. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Just can you remind me of the question? I've been dropping in and out of them. If you've noticed, uh, I just put a message in the chat saying the yes. gremlin seemed to be attacking my system. So uh, remind <laughs> me if you wouldn't mind. No, just uh, getting people to react to just this, the, my attempt at triggering, triggering people with a meme, uh, just saying data engineering is the most important part of data science. I just want to get people's uh, thoughts and opinions on that. Sure. Well, if we take the data out of the equation, engineering and science are two very compatible fields of very necessary disciplines for human um, progress. So you, know, you can't have a good engineer without science and engineering very often helps sciences, uh, especially some of the deep sciences, you know, say, um, I'm trying to think of a, of a deep one now, but say that, you know, a quantum physicist, or so something like that is going to need to be able to um, implement some engineering principles in their science. So in that very broad spectrum, throw everything in a pot to try and understand the, the, the two descriptions. I'd say, uh, personally me, I, I'm neither a data scientist or a data engineer. I'm a little bit of both and a little bit of a lot of other things as well. Uh, so I suppose that maybe the sitting on the fence answer or the, or, or the the more um, objective answer mm -hmm. rather than subjective is neither and both in varying degrees, depending on the job you're actually doing at the time. So some days I'll do things that I, I could classify more as data science. Uh, some days it'll be more data engineer. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying my best not to be triggered if you can, <laughs> if you can tell. I get, uh, like the, uh, like the very uh, politician like answer. Uh, Manny, let's uh, hear from you. Hey guys, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, I think my thoughts are uh, come more from a business sense, right? Uh, kind of like Christian piggybacking off of Christian and and in a lot of organizations that I work with, they can't even have a data scientist. What they what they really need is a data engineer. Um, that that's that's just frankly how how what the business needs, uh, mm -hmm. right? That they need to be able to access data, and maybe they don't need the fancy data science models. Maybe what they need is, well, I just need this view and this visual, right? So they need to get all these sources together. So I think the, we're trying. Uh, this is a data science podcast, but it, it really goes uh, to what do, what does the business need? What are we trying to solve? What problem or business problem are we trying to solve? And sometimes there may not be a data science problem. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, that's why I think. Data engineering, in some sense, is kind of like the foundation for everything, especially if you're trying to go into analytics. Um, and as everybody else was mentioning, data yeah. science builds on top of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 
I'm kind of liberal with my use of the the term data science. I considered like data science to be like an umbrella. So there's like the traditional data scientist, data engineer, analytics engineer, BI people, you know, data analysts, all these people kind of fall into that data science uh, umbrella. Um, but yeah, I'm ready to take some questions. If you guys got any questions, please do let me know. Um, I'd be happy to uh, to take some of these questions on. Oh, dude, by the way, Facebook changed your name to Meta, huh? That's uh, that's some, I mean, you know, Ron Artest should say something. I don't know if you all know who Ron Artest is, basketball player who changed his name in the uh, mid-2000s to Meta World Peace. Um, I think he has the... Uh, the, the rights to that uh but yeah, anyways uh what the companies are no longer fang but it will be uh i guess mang or manga hmm, interesting uh marina let's go uh let's hear from you i know i have a question about visualizations and um, so what kind of visualization tool um like is like everybody using and probably if you will have to learn one or you wanted to use one outside work because you know that may be a different um different one hey which one you will recommend like locker um uh, i don't know like tableau or yeah that's that's my question yeah, i'd love to hear from uh from anyone who has expertise on this i don't do a lot of visualizations just a matplotlib but go for it christian uh, yeah, so that's how i first that's how i got started in the data world is uh, i got introduced to tableau and uh, Power BI and all that kind of stuff. I, I found if you can, um, just like with anything, is you kind of learn the lay of of the software, right? Tableau's super simple and super applicable, and uh, with Tableau Prep also, like it helps you to do some basic uh, repeatable cleaning, right? And so that's what we deployed when uh, at a larger company I used to work for. When we kind of spun up an analysis group across functions. We had a lot of data and information that we were able to apply ourselves, but didn't have a great way to like present it to folks. Tableau is great because you drag and drop it in there. You create all these views, interactive, and you can publish it to server as well. And so stakeholders can interact with it now. Um, and so I have a really, really good experience with, with Tableau. There's some things that, that Power BI does that Tableau doesn't, but I'm still a Tableau fanboy. So if anybody asks and they're looking to get started, I recommend Tableau myself. Matt Blasa, go for it. Yeah, I mean, if it's just for like building out your own visualizations on the side, Tableau, I agree with Christian, is really very, very useful for that. Um, if when you're if you're working like with something more like Azure or you have an Azure environment or like a server like there, um, Power BI I found is a lot more easy to configure to you know get insights for that and to connect to the data than Tableau is. Anybody else have any insights on this? I want a. Ben Taylor's in the house, by the way. Ben Taylor's going on, man. Good to see you. I uh, like that, uh, like that, that uh, beanie there, too. That's what we call it in Canada. Uh, Russell, go for it. Uh, yeah, so I, I just wrote something very quickly in the, in the chat there saying trying to decide the best um, visualization or BI tool. It's, it's like trying to decide the, the best dessert, you know, your favorite dessert. Michelin star chef is going to be able to create something fantastic that not very many people at home could do. But your average cook at home might have a, a really good cheesecake recipe or a, a, you know a, a, a chocolate cake recipe that many people can do. And I, and I think it's kind of like that. If you are a Michelin-starred chef level of uh, data, let's say broad data, not just data science, engineering, but any kind of analytical approach uh, to data, you're very possibly going to have the skills to use, you know, GDplot, Matplotlib, um, 
all of those kinds of things. But the more uh, approachable ones, such as Tableau, Power BI, etc., are great for. Um, I don't want to use the word novices, but you know the, the lower level echelons of that data expertise, um, especially Power BI. It's part of the Office 365 um, uh, environment, so it, it connects with so many things. You can you can run it standalone. Uh, you can run it on uh, an enterprise level. You can connect it to Azure SQL, etc. So there's a lot of room for expansion for that. However, it's tied into the to the Microsoft environment. Uh, Tableau standalone also very good in its own right, a little less flexible than Power BI. So it kind of de uh, depends on the environment in which you're using it, uh, the, the skill base of the users. And when I say the users, I would draw clear distinctions about the user developers and the user consumers. So um, both of those, you will publish something, the users will come in, they will interact with it via the, uh, you know, the slices, the filters, uh, flick between pages, etc. And there's slightly different um, usage characteristics between the two. And then your developers as well will create and maintain all of the stuff that you publish. So there's a, I'd say kind of a, a curved scale. Your entry level things, and um, as you say, Power BI, Tableau. There are others, uh, Click. Um, and a whole host of others that I can't remember uh, off the top of my head. But those are a great entry-level tool, but don't restrict yourself to using those um, simply because you start with those. Um, they, they should not restrict and allow you to grow and build upon those as, as part of a, uh, a wider visualization structure. Thank you very much, Russell. Uh, anybody else have any suggestions? Marina, did that, did that help at all? Like, are, are any of these things free? Like, I know Tableau has a free public tier, but I don't know about the rest of these things. Like, is there anything so, that's just available? Power BI is free, but it, mm -hmm. I, I find it, it's a little bit of a frustrating licensing um, uh, model. So it's free for everybody. You can download the desktop and you can do whatever you want. However, you cannot see the product of anybody else unless you pay for a paid license. And the first paid license, I think, is a pro license. I think it's $9.99 per user per month. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can't see others work until you have a pro license. It's kind of a reverse paid structure. It's almost, um, I've had this conversation with a few other people, it's a bit like a, a kind of a drug pusher, you know, give you the product for free, let you play around with it, get deep into it, really enjoy it. Then when you want to share your work, you have to actually ask other people to pay for a license so they can see your work and vice versa. So there's benefits to it, but there's also uh, distinct restrictions to it. And Tableau, I think, is the other way around. Um, so there's different uh, license um, tiers to it. There's kind of a, a basic user, which is low in the, in the midst of what Power BI um, low licenses, and there's a developer license and uh, the server hosting um, modules that also uh, change much as they do with Power BI. Grew up around a lot of drug dealers, so I can uh, say that strategy does actually uh, work. Uh, let's uh, Gina had a question uh, that came in before uh, Christian, so let's go to Gina's question, then we'll go to Christian's question. Uh, Gina, you had a question about deploying models. I, I think uh, Ben Taylor or Joe Reese would uh, I'd love to hear you guys' perspective on this, so keep an ear out for, uh, for the question here. Great, thanks. Um, yeah, hi, everyone. Good to see everybody. Um, so my question is around, um, and for those of you who um, I haven't um, interacted with on the happy hour yet, I'm, um, I've been through a data science boot camp. I also have many, many years of professional experience, including some analytics, financial modeling, investment analysis, and a whole bunch of other things. So um, 
I'm coming at it with a career pivot um, and I'm continuing to build my skills after the boot camp. And so I'm aware of some tools to deploy models or even just little software scripts um, in online. And so like I'm an avid um, cyclist, but particularly on Zwift indoors. And I joined actually, uh, I joined a racing team, which is kind of funny. I'm going for last place because uh, I'm racing above my level. But somebody came up with the idea they want to be able to post in Discord. They want to be able to post their um, kind of workout graphs from the uh, workout, but they want it to look like a Zwift graph. Just so, just ease of comparison. You know, you see it at a glance. You you know where people were in their workout zones. And so somebody started some code and I'm like, ooh, I'm gonna take this. And I built on it and added some stuff. And now I'm thinking of putting it up in Streamlit. So that's a very, very simple example. That's not a data science thing per se, but um, one of the things they didn't really go into in the bootcamp and I really wish they had was, you know, uh, deploying models with, you know, Flask or, um, or rest and like, I'm already kind of out of my element. So I'd really like to get your guys's input. I know for a lot of you, this is like probably super basic in entry level stuff, but I'd really appreciate your thoughts. And because as I continue to build on my portfolio, um, this is an area where, you know, it'd be great to understand some of the good, some of the better places to go with it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you'd be surprised, like uh, in a lot of companies, deploying is not fancy. It's just, you know, sometimes saving solutions off as a CSV, pushing them into a database. Some people get sophisticated, have a web API if they want to be more advanced. Uh, but Ben, Taylor, let's go to you. Yeah, if it's a personal project, Flask is great. So Gina, if you look into Flask, I think you will be delighted how simple it is. To start, I'd recommend looking, I think the classic is like the chat server. So you have like a chat server example, then you'll realize like, oh, so when I ask a question, when I send something in, I'm going to have a model loaded in memory and I'll kick back a prediction. And, and I think you'll find lots of Flask, Flask SQLearn examples. But I, I think if you look into it, you'll be delighted that like, oh, this is super easy. For anything that is being consumed in production for a company, um, the, you know, there's issues on scalability, SLAs, there's consequences. And so the, the list of consequences quickly grows it's not just about the model going down and scalability issues. It's also stuff like feature drift. So when I was at HireVue, we had a feature drift excursion that impacted the customer, which surprised us because the models are static. So the model's static, customer's happy, first month, second month, third month, everything's great. And then suddenly within 24 hours, it's hair on fire. The model's not working at all. And the root cause, it doesn't matter how good your, your data governance is, the root cause is a vendor that doesn't have as good of data governance as you, especially when you get into these really wide models where you're consuming stuff from other people outside of your circle, they had shifted a threshold without telling us thinking it was minor and it had been, it had impacted something in the model. So um, yeah, so when it comes to production where things are consumed, I, I think there's a very long list of problems. Um, but I, I'm curious, like I'm sure there's people on this call that have started with the, put a flask wrapper API around your machine learning model and then respond to scalability. Like you can throw machine learning models on lambdas on Amazon, you'll get really good scalability. And then maybe something I'm more naive to is you do have SageMaker and different things that can scale models, but I think it's still a little bit more, I have a bias because I work at DataRobot. I'd say it's still more of like the hobbyist level when it comes to like, oh, you get fired for a prediction gone bad. 
then I would lean towards my employer for stuff like that. Or I'm curious, Joe, are we competitors? Um, just we are, that's... You'll be fine. <laughs> um, ben, you can Venmo me money after. I'm just joking. Um, okay, here it comes. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that those are all good points, really. And I think for where you are right now, um, focusing on, I think, showing that you know how to deploy a model is the most important thing. The other things I would say you should you should know about too is just how does Rust work? You know, like I think that's an understated skill, and this sort of starts getting into software engineering. But when you're deploying stuff to production, I don't think you can ignore software engineering. And so know about like also other things like serializing and deserializing uh, data. Right? Like that's pretty key, and just the basic concepts of like you know like Rust, like you know get, put, post, delete, requests, and that kind of stuff. I think they're just awesome things to know in general. Like, it'd be one thing to know how to, I think, going through a tutorial and deploying Flask, but then like, why does it do what it does? I think those yeah. are, where you are, I think those are the more important questions I would say like you should be looking at. Cause like as Ben points out, once you get into production, there's no shortage of myriad ways that things can go wrong. Um, and also knowing like basic stuff, like is my, like if my API is broken, like where? <laughs> That, that tends to be understated quite a bit. So that's where I would personally also look. But I think what Ben suggested is great and just go use data robot for everything. Um. <laughs> so so um so on is there would you say there's kind of a hierarchy? You kind of alluded to it, right? I mean, you know, right now I'm talking streamlit and a a, a guy who is also in my program used is using streamlit on a very basic you know, um, predict the grade level of elementary school students, you know, predict their grade level based on the essay. And literally it's like you upload the text in there and then it makes those predictions. So, um, but it sounds like, I mean, you have Streamlit, you have Flask. Um, uh, I don't know where REST falls into that because- well, That's learning. what I'm saying, like learn, learn what REST is. Cause it's not, cause I think like Streamlit and Flask sort of obfuscate a lot of these details. Like REST is really a paradigm. It stands for representational state transfer. Sorry, I've been talking for days now. Um, <laughs> and, and really that's a paradigm, you know, of, of, um, of it's a way of, but not just serving data, but it's a way, it's a request and response model of data, right? And so that's what I'm saying. Like Flask is just, a, it's, a, it's an abstraction built on top of, and actually Flask itself is a web server and then a web framework There is actually Flask REST for the API part, right? And then there's also new APIs like Fast API, which I think is dope. But if you don't really know like REST and kind of how the request response model works in web servers, like that's where I would say like start there because once you know that, then it's kind of like any API is an API at the end of the day. So. And then where does it go from there? I mean, you mentioned Data Robot, which is up here somewhere. I mean, you mentioned Lambda on AWS, and you said even with that, that's not necessarily at a level you would want to be um, when you know your job's kind of on the line, really, day to day. There, yeah, there's I mean, so many options. There's a lot of options. Yeah, that's part of the problem, right? I mean, part I think most of the discussion is just like trying to like cut through like what is a tool versus what's a paradigm. Yeah. Right? Like, like Lambda has this notion of serverless. Now you got to figure out what that is. We I did a webinar this week where we we're showing predictions in Java um, in Snowflake. So like natively in Snowflake, you can upload Java user defined functions, and then right there in SQL, you're doing your machine learning models, which is pretty awesome. 
So that, then there's no server. Snowflake took care of it, right? Just I, I was speaking with someone this week who um, has actually been at a company for like over 10 years. They've been doing modeling. The company has some patents actually um, in, I think, some machine learning stuff going way back. And he was talking about they use uh, Google BigQuery, I think, and they tried Snowflake for a while, and then they actually, I think it just didn't work very well for their use cases. So it seems like now you're talking Google BigQuery, I mean, that's getting into those higher, you know, kind of more heavy duty um, uh, uh, approaches to deploying models. He's a data engineer and has been for many years, so he knows his stuff. Yeah, and that's that. Well, that's another one. That's a data warehouse. It's serverless, and right? so you can see it's kind of like turtles all the way down. And oh, and the other thing I forgot to mention too: if you're if you're dealing with an API, then you need to know how networking works. If you're going to do it in production, you better damn well know how networking security works. You're not going to just have like some unencrypted like, the thing about authorization. I mean, you'd be crazy, and you get fired. Um, so you got to. There's a lot to know. So I'd say like, you know, it's, it's interesting. And that's where I think Ben is sort of alluding to as well with these tools that sort of, you know, allow you to work in production. Because if you were to try and do all this stuff by hand, this is where I've seen a lot of data scientists. They're like, oh yeah, I'll just do this model in production and flask. And it's like, cool. Do you know what that actually requires in production? It's not just like firing up in your laptop and on localhost. It's, uh, there's a lot to it. Thank you for mentioning, it. Joe, about uh, REST and making that distinction that it's a paradigm and really understanding REST, it sounds like will help a lot just conceptually and, you know, more tactically understand how stuff is actually, you know, the, the what is happening under the hood, if that's accurate to say, um, in deployment and learning some of these things at kind of a fundamental level. Good luck. Thanks. Right on. Gina, great question. Great uh, discussion here. Let's go to uh, Christian's question. Yeah, Christian, go for it. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, it's, you know, there's for the last 10 years, it seems like it's been a lot of questions about resources for learning skills, and that's always going to be important to stay sharp. But I'm just wondering for the folks here, like, uh, you know, what are the best resources that you might recommend that you've come across for maybe data scientists specifically to get more effective at things like identifying high, high value use cases and informing and influencing stakeholders? Within the Shista's newsletter. Uh, that's for sure. His newsletter is amazing. Um, mostly newsletters. That's <clears throat> story go to. There's this other guy that I found on um, Twitter. His name is Santiago. Uh, I think if you type in like Santiago machine learning or Santiago just data scientist, he might come up on on Twitter. Uh, his stuff is pretty good as well. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear from. I mean, for, for anyone really, like uh, I think Eric dropped off. But Monica, how do you stay sharp? Uh, Matt, how do you stay sharp? Uh. Um, for more strategic level stuff, I tend to um, look into like the methodologies that you're using. Um, so within cybersecurity, there's that NIST 853 um, type stuff and to just look at that high level. I don't yeah, I can't think of anything beyond like those high-level methodologies. How about a, let's hear from a Ben or, or Joe on this because uh, you guys have been in the game for 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 a while doing this stuff, OG days. How, how you guys keep on top of things? 
Christian, you're talking about influencing key stakeholders for your. Sure. Yeah. Like from, from a data scientist perspective, especially like, uh, you know, if you're always talking about, you want to be outcome oriented, you want to hit the, the big wins, especially let's say you're early on in a data science org, you want the quick wins. How do you identify the high value use cases? And then kind of along with that is like, now you got to influence people that these are the right things to do. Yeah. No, I, I love this question. Cause I really sucked at this. Um, because so, you know we all love data science, we're so excited. And I remember having like an hour long meeting with an executive and showing them the three things I tried. And now the third one is working so well and they don't understand any of it. And I'm thinking like the whole time they're wondering like, how much are we paying you? Should we fire you? Um, so the best way to do it is uh, there's some good exploratory questions. So it's good for you to know what are your top KPIs this, um, you know, this quarter? Because how are they getting bonused out? Like if you can help them next quarter, they're really going to like you. So what are your top KPIs? And then if you want to be more exploratory, you can say, what are the numbers in your department where a small change in that number makes you really excited? And then they're going to talk about, oh, we've got loss. Or we, they'll bring up some numbers and those could be opportunities for AI improvements. And then the other thing I like to say is, if where are you, where's your growth bottleneck by human capital? So if I could gift you a thousand humans, they're experts. It's only one job family. What are they? And they're free. They're free for a year. Where are you going to put them in your department? And so that allows you to kind of shine a light on potential problems. But the more you start working backwards, um, the best thing you can show an executive is a number with a dollar sign. And that confuses data scientists because we're so analytical, we're so fact-based, but the reality is you can go through a utility function and come up with all these assumptions. So if you have a predictive model and you do some kind of cut or something, you can back that into, I'm estimating I'll save you $10 million a year. And if I disagree with you and say, I think you're full of it, now you can go through your assumptions and we can have a discussion. So the more you work backwards, never use any jargon, never show your work, just show the outcomes that you'll do really well. I did not know that originally. But Ben's still very successful, so. <laughs> I've had my ass kicked enough. Um, but I, you really do win on the quarter. So if you can guarantee, like everyone you interact with, how are you going to get them promoted next quarter? With that mindset, you'll be working on the right problems. Obviously, you want long-term strategy. But you can't do long-term strategy if you don't have short-term wins first. Get the short-term wins, then you can be more expansive. Thank you very much, uh, Ben. Joe, uh, love to hear from you on this. And then after that, we'll go to uh, Gina. Yeah, I mean, it's um, I mean, this is very much like a sales question, right? But I think that's what most things end up just becoming is sales and marketing at the end of the day. So... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, Ben's right. Start with, the, you know, kind of the problem at hand. Um, like, I, you know, I was on three or four sales calls today, right? I don't think once did I ever use jargon. And we're talking about stakeholders, some technical, some not. And the thing I was focused on was like, what are you trying to do? And how can I help you? That's it. Right. At the end of the day, you know, uh, it's, it's, when I asked a really wealthy friend um, how, he, how you make a lot of money, he said, well, you sell what, what people want to buy. It's easy. Yeah. It's that easy and that hard, but really it's no different when you're trying to, you know, sell a project internally or something, right? You just figure out what, what motivates the person and, and, you know, what they value and, and sell them that. You don't need to like, and in fact, it, it almost talking too much works against you in a lot of ways. Uh, that, that same guy also told me when like, when they're about to buy it, just shut up and take the sale, stop talking. So that's the other thing, you know, because data, data scientists, you, you will all be tempted to just talk a lot like I am right now, but. 48 laws of power, law 
Number four, always say less than necessary. When you're trying to impress people with words, the more you say, more common you appear and less in control. Gina, go for it. Ouch. <laughs> now I'm going to say something right after that. Oh my God. Go and it, it's go so it. true. And I've worked on it for years and I'm still working. Um, incentives. It's all about the incentives that your executives, your managers are facing. And um, that's not to say they'll always be rational. I've heard of situations where the data scientist does this analysis. They try their best to explain it. And it goes against the executive's intuition. I won't go into the specific case, but you know, it's it can be crazy sometimes. So I mean, you can't, there's only so much you can do. But like Joe says, like Ben says, um, and this is where having lots of years of experience prior, you know, in a range of environments, including consulting, it's the bottom line. Why do they care? Why should they care? What, what matters to them? They don't care about fancy statistics or cool models. I mean, if they're not technical, they're not gonna care about any of that as long as they know that there's something behind it and you're not just making crap up. Um, it's really important. And so years ago, before I was doing data science stuff, um, I was working in a role that was um, worldwide um, team in a great big company, no P&L. So you have to try to earn your keep somehow. And we were uh, working with two different groups, trying to convince the, the uh, technology solutions group, the people who would actually go out and repair PCs and repair servers and this and that, to, to push some of that out, let more of that be handled by channel partners. But they didn't want to do that. They kind of wanted to own all the customers. And this is a problem from a market share perspective, especially in certain countries, because they're getting their lunch, you know, they're getting their butts handed to them in certain countries by other big hardware manufacturers at the time. And so what we did was, and I came at it with a, I'm agnostic, you know, I'm gonna go out and get information from people. And we talked to a lot of salespeople in different regions and they kept coming back saying, yeah, you know, this other big storage company, you know, kicked our butts. I lost $6 million sale here. I lost 10 million there because for the small and medium business customers, they were fine with letting channel partners handle it. And our company wasn't. And this was extremely contentious. And yet we managed to, with the analysis I did with the help of some others, we managed to convince the senior management in that group that didn't want to give up that channel managed to convince them to at least give it a try. And um, that was a, you know, a big win for our group because we needed to have credibility and we needed to show that, you know, even though we were kind of more aligned on the hardware side, we needed to be able to show that this is legit and back it up with analysis. But at the, the bottom line was we could be making $40 million more annually um, in Basically, we're growing the whole pie. So we're making more sales even on the technology support side by giving up some of this stuff to channel partners. And when you can make a case like that, it's pretty hard to, for anybody to argue with it, even when there are fiefdoms and territorial kind of turf wars going on. So that's the other thought I would 
you know, convey on that is just also understanding those dynamics and establishing trust with the different groups. So you have credibility. They don't think, oh yeah, well, you're just coming from this group and you're just trying to, you know, and in big companies, you can have these, um, these tensions sometimes. So I probably talked too much there again, but I hope. <laughs> Gina, thank you so much. I appreciate, appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I was going to throw in real quick, yeah, yeah. Uh, listening to Gina, I think um, one of the things I'm reminded of, it's that's why it's important to have a shotgun approach, because if you bet all your eggs on one model, and there's some intuitive hiccup or pushback or politics you weren't expecting, um, have, a, have three to five problems, work with the subject matter experts, have them write the dollar signs next to the problems before you start, because uh, you can get buy-in before you even start. And I think it's funny because you say, how, what is this worth? And you have shoulder shrugs then say you can put a zero, $1 sign, or up to $5 signs. And then if they, if they tell that to you, then you, you're kind of working on the right problem. That might save you from stubbing the toe on something later. Christian, hopefully that was helpful. That's a lot of good insight there. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, Let's uh, let's keep it moving. We got a question coming in. Greg Coquillo is uh, chilling in the chat. Uh, before we get to Greg's question, though, shout out to Antonio Ivanovsky. He is watching on LinkedIn. Antonio, uh, they just had a him and his wife just had a baby a few weeks ago. Congratulations to my friend. Uh, hopefully, you got the snoop. Need that thing, man. You're gonna need that. That's a uh, that's key to sleeping. But congratulations to you, man. Uh, gonna be a hell of a ride. Um, so we got Greg Coquillo's question coming in. Uh, this one's for Ben. And he wants to know, uh, I saw this post that you uh, posted just like as soon as I opened up LinkedIn. It was, um, what do you think about Elon's idea of a Texas tech and science university? So I'm a little embarrassed about this because it's a joke. So it spells tits. Um, but I'm a huge Elon fan. So I fell, I fell for the joke. I feel like anything Elon touches gets disrupted. And so unfortunately, it is a joke and it's inappropriate. But if Elon did say, I'm going to make a university, I would fight like hell to get my kids to go there. And I think all the other institu in institutions would be in huge trouble because it, it takes five years on average for an institution, like your traditional institution, to incorporate new curriculum. And for everyone on this Zoom call, what, what, how does that set them up for AI and data science? Like it's, you know, they're like failing before they start and there's a few that are okay. And that's why these boot camps are so appealing because they're much more nimble. So. Yeah, sorry. I I kind of I spread I spread that joke even further. You know, Ben, I wouldn't say that it, I wouldn't even put it past him for it not to be. A, I mean, look at the way that he's named his models for the Tesla. They're real cars, so he may very well put a university out there with the acronym Kids. <laughs> Wait, hold up. Explain that to me. How, what's his? So, so the Model S, the Model Three, which he wanted to be the Model E, the Model X. Sex, right? That's, I mean, he really did it. That's what he does. So he's he. I wouldn't put it past him to make a university and make that acronym. And I agree with Ben's thoughts. It's like I've been thinking for I've been in college for way too long. Just started another master's program, and some of them are great, but there's a lot of friction, a lot of pain, a lot of just dumb stuff happening in the university system, ripe for disruption. And I would totally, just as Ben was saying, I totally agree. What a guy, man! Elon Musk, love that guy though. Seriously. Uh, Greg, there you go. Uh, it's a joke. So uh, hopefully your question wasn't uh, wasn't serious and you weren't just making fun of that, Ben. Uh, all right. So uh, if anybody else has a question, whether you're on LinkedIn, whether you're in the chat room, let me know. I just want to, you know, 
ask a question uh, mostly for 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 Joe because uh, I know I've heard you talk about this before. Uh, the switch from uh, ETL to ELT, the use of something like you know DBT, like break this down for a uh, for for data scientists and and analytics engineers out there. And you know what's this shift about? Is it a cultural shift? Is it just you know do we realize that it's easier to do this? What, yeah, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, so the difference really is there's there's ETL, which is extract, transform, and load, right? And then there's ELT, which extract, load, and transform. ETL for the longest time has been the predominant paradigm. This is typically used in data warehousing, for example, moving data into data lakes. The idea is with ETL, you're going to extract data from a source system, you're going to transform it in flight, and then you're going to land it and maybe into a database table in a destination, right? Extract, transform the data, and then load it. Um, and the reason why this came about really, it started because um, it, it, I wouldn't say it was adopted because you had uh, limitations on hardware back in the day. This is predominantly a, a paradigm used in on-prem systems where the white servers, databases, these are expensive and you don't have a lot of resources to throw at it, right? So you have to, typically you, the system doing a transformation, you know, it, it's gonna get bogged down, right? And you don't wanna interrupt the downstream database from queries nor the upstream system from what you're getting data. Um, but you know, you kind of circle around the advent of cloud data warehouses starting with Redshift. I think the realization was, well, you could just throw your data into, you could just extract the data from a source system and then you know, load it into a, um, a cloud data warehouse, for example, in a staging area, and just that raw data is there. You could use the seemingly infinite compute power you know, of the, um, of that cloud data warehouse, which transformed the data there and just load that into a new table within that data warehouse. So I think that was really the fundamental shift is what happened was um, uh, cloud data warehousing and along with that, to some extent, cloud data lakes. Uh, although I think that it's more of a separate discussion, but we'll stick with data warehousing for now. So that really was, was the genesis of, I think, the ELT movement. And since then, it's... Um, uh, I would say this is becoming more of the predominant paradigm we're seeing. E ETL is becoming, I would say, less uh, of something you would do as a net new way of uh, getting data into your data lake or data warehouse. So I hope that makes sense. That's about the three-minute yeah. version of it. So, Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely enough to check out. I think you did like a, a talk or discussion about this um, at, was it dedicated that you did this talk? Yeah, the expo. Yeah, the ten minute yeah. Uh, lightning talk. Yeah, yeah. So go ahead and uh, check that out as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, just been. Yeah, you know, I'm. I'm always. <clears throat> I just want to get into all parts of data science. Like you know, I just want to know a little bit of everything. Just be well versed as possible. Uh, so data engineering has kind of been the thing I've, you know, kind of been been poking around and trying to learn more about. Um, all right, let's see if there's any other questions. Uh, shout out to Ken McCabe, found his way into the room. Ken, I realized that uh, I had put the link, um, a faulty link in the uh, in the chat, but I'm glad you're here. Uh, if you got any questions, let me know. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Uh, if you got any questions, let us know, man. Uh, YouTube or LinkedIn, any questions, please do let us know. All right. Uh, No questions coming in. All right, let's uh, yes, where we want to take this. Let's see. All right, this is a host in crisis, just trying to think of something to come up to uh, with to uh, discuss. Ben, I see you're unmuted. Please save me. What is next after deep learning? 
what is next after deep learning? Can deep learning take us where we need to go? Or does it need a reinvent? Do we need to burn it down on the ground and start over? Mm. Did, First, if anyone do the physics. What, what, what prompts you to ask that question? Yeah, yeah. Because so, I'm obsessed about the singularity in my kitchen. Yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, look, it, I, I think it's going to be the analogy between how far Newton's physics has gotten us now and then, you know, quantum after that. Who knows what's after quantum, right? Uh, I was listening, you know, at least partway this uh, interview that Lex Friedman released with uh, uh, Stephen Wolfram. And they're just talking about all this crazy cutting edge stuff with uh, complexity theory and, and AI and consciousness and all that stuff. And I mean, we have no idea what's going to happen next, right? Like it, it, we're building the future. Literally, this is probably the only time in human history we're building, we are literally building the airplane while we're flying it. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, that's kind of the analogy, I think. It's like, okay, well, you know, everybody thought Newton's physics was it, and then quantum mechanics came along, and who knows what's after quantum mechanics. I, I think the general trend is, like, faster, easier. Like, because people are so excited about semi-supervised learning, which I think is a little silly, because it's, like, so obvious. Like, oh, you want to label some images, but you don't want to label a million of them? Maybe you should train a crappy model when you have a hundred labeled. Like, it's funny because people say it's like it's so profound. It's like no dummy. Like, of course you should do that. Yeah. But I think when it comes to better and faster, you can imagine some really, really brilliant, really, really good unsupervised deep learning approaches, where the moment you label like five or ten images, it's like just like taking off, or it's done like some pre-clustering or something. Um, I, I get really excited about this concept of AI. AI that survives to please you. Um, and by please you, I mean actual insights. So ring.com, their camera app is awful. Like it's, you can't turn it on because it just blasts your phone all day. That's not actual insight. So I think AI of the future, everything's actionable. Everything's what, class of, what class of deep learning do you think will take us there? I mean, it, it sounds most likely reinf deep reinforcement learning. Some flavor of that will probably be huge in, 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 in the future yeah i think um it, it's i, I think there because i've seen there's been some excitement around novelty based systems or focus-based learning like and and i, and I apologize too because i've actually i used to drown in this stuff like i would like choke on it and this is why this was my life for three years and it's been i went a full year at data robot without programming and now i'm programming again coming back uh, into the fold um i think that you are going to have, you're going to have deep learning networks that can be much more impressive training from zero. So GPT-3 and these big nets that train with more data than any human can ever imagine, you're going to have some deep learning examples that shock you with their ability to learn with limited observation. And when I think of those systems, I think of systems that are really good at novelty. Because right now, deep learning is not. If I throw like an outlier into the training set, it's not going to do very well when it sees a similar outlier again. And so I think you'll see deep learning systems that when they detect novelty, so I almost imagine this deep learning system, I said, Joe, you think this is creepy because I want to design a deep learning model where I have like eyeballs and pupils. And so I'm feeding data through it. And then when I feed it something novel, you'll see the pupils dilate like, whoa, whoa. And you know, behind the scenes, this deep learning model is doing some very aggressive augmentation on that recent observation. It's trying to be as aggressive as aggressive as it can to comprehend 
what is this new thing that I just experienced? Where I think a lot of deep learning models today are quite dumb. Like you give it an outlier and it's not smarter for it. And so I think the deep learning systems in the future will be very, very good at quickly adapting to an outlier, even a single observation, so, which is so what the human brain does. If we think about you know AI eventually gaining some type of cognition, right? I think language models will be instrumental to making that happen because I mean, if we if you follow Noam Chomsky's idea, uh, you know his his theory of language, language is like the fundamental aspect of cognition. That is how we think. So developing really good language models, right, could maybe help facilitate cognition within within AI. What are your thoughts on that? I um I, I worry sometimes that we're trying too hard to build up into the right not knowing where we're going and i really like the idea of working backwards like i feel like for everything in my life working backwards is so useful like we've mm -hmm. talked about value we talked about the more you're in the head of the the person at the end that matters you know people want to get promoted they want to be successful they want to get their bonuses the more you're in their head the more you can work backwards to success but for this example um you should build an AI system that can learn a language. So Arpreet, I think you're exactly right. Like a language is kind of the core of it. But when I think of language, I don't think of like GPT-3. I think of an AI system in my kitchen. I just had a new baby. Just kidding, I didn't. But if I did, I have an AI system in my kitchen that is there and I'm interacting with it just like I would a child. And it begins to mimic and learn a language. And everyone on this call would say, well, just because it can mimic 20 words or 50 words like your child, it's still not there. And I think what you would see is you'd have these milestones, like 20 words through experience, two-year-old level through experience, and even like a seven-year-old through experience. AI experts would still say this thing is not conscious. But when it goes to school and it's studying physics, now we start to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Joe's talking about, uh, Ben just talked about babies. Joe's talking about one-shot learning, just a little, um, I guess, uh, anecdote here, uh, one-shot learning in babies. Uh, earlier this week, I... But dark outside in the morning time, pointed to the, had my son with me, looked out the window, pointed to the moon and said, moon. And he's like, moon. And now every morning since then, he's been running outside straight up to the window and saying, moon, 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 looking for the moon. Or when we're in the, you know, backyard at, at nighttime, whatever, he's like looking around for the moon. So one shot learning, like this is something that I don't know too much about. Is this something that like there's actual research into, or is this something that's just like, I mean, the notion really is that it's more in computer vision, but you could use it to not use as many training examples and still come up with basically the same thing. You train on a bunch of images. So I think it's the notion is to reduce the amount of uh, training instances that you need. You know, so is this the same thing? Is there some element of like self supervised learning in this? I don't know. I need to go back and read the paper. I remember reading yeah. it last year. And, yeah. But. Well, it seems like, I mean, yeah, I think that's kind of what Ben was hitting on too. I mean, this is, I think this is, because the amount of, um, like GPT-3 consumes a ton of data and parameters, right? I mean, it's ungodly how much that uses. Um, megabytes uh, and megabytes, I think is, I mean, gigabytes and megabytes. <laughs> it's many multiple tens of gigabytes large, uh, huge. Yeah, but, I, you know, I, I mean, I, it's, it's just a field where, I mean, I'm obviously more data engineering, but I, I do still kind of keep abreast of this stuff because I think, that, you know, a lot. it seems like a lot of the, the heavyweights in the field too, you know, you Hintons and, and so forth are trying to think of new ways. Like, you know, they, I think they've, they've, they feel like deep learning sort of reached a, 
you know, kind of its limits. And maybe, I would think they'd be the ones to know since they're the ones who kind of invented it in the first place. So, um, but it, it's hard, it's hard to say where it goes. I don't know. Um, I mean, I would say if you, if you wanted to know, I think mean, those would be as good of a place as any to start. Just look at the stuff they're putting out in, in publications and in papers because um, I'm always fascinated by that. And causal learning, that's the one everyone talks about, but you know, I, I, I'd be interested to see where that goes. So, I don't know. Like the Bayesian belief networks type of thing. Mm -hmm. learning. Uh, ben, you're about to say something. I'd love to hear from you. If anybody else has anything to uh, say or ask on this topic, please do know your uh, thoughts, inputs, questions are welcome. Ben, go for it. I think one of the huge things that's listening or missing from these deep learning frameworks is the ability for recall. Uh, I don't mean recall by the data science definition. I mean, recall is in memory. So search is something that is, you know, Google has search, search engines have search, but when you're building a deep learning model, you don't really think about its search capability. You can, you can, you can carve off the bottom of your classifier or right above it and you can pull out a latent space and you can do some clustering with that really cool stuff you can do search with it too um like image net a pre-trained image net vector you can search with it um but i think that's something when i think of the models in the future like and i apologize for bringing this example up again it's obviously top of mind for me so if i think about a model just experiencing life through a camera if i ask that model later hey check out this frame or check out check out this object it will be much better than a human at going back in time and its experience and placing it um yeah, so Wait, I, here's something interesting. Sorry, oh, let's finish your thought. Sorry, sorry. Apologies. Um, I, I think the last I thought I had is just you're you're going to see a reduction in the number of times that AI has to review. Actually, I, I might be, I might be going past what I'm about to say because I'm going to say the number of images that it has to review. I'm saying it's going to go down, but I don't think that's actually true because when it comes to novelty, I think it's going to go up. So just like humans have to dream and we have to like form these memories and connections, I think AI will have to do some of that too. But this experiential learning, I, I think that's what's missing, experiential learning, where it's like this temporal flow. Well, that's an that's a interesting thing because so much of our, I mean, we our experience is sequential, it's linear, it's you know one through line for our experience. So let's say there's some artificial intelligence, machine intelligence, the way they process things is not going to be necessarily sequential the way we do because they're distributed, they're parallel, asynchronous even. That's not how human brains work. So I wonder what, you know, if there's an entity like that today, tomorrow, yesterday, it's counting no age. Time means nothing to it. Yeah, it doesn't know time, but I, I think you're going you're gonna to see some really fun behaviors of these systems that feel like they're living. They're going to show surprise and novelty. And we'll all chuckle on this call because we know they're not living. But if I show them to my parents, like if my parents come over to my home, my home is going to show huge interest in them the first time. Mm -hmm. They're very novel. It's very interested in them. It's paying attention. The camera is actually panning and tracking them while they walk through the house. It doesn't care about the kids or the dog or anything else. But then when the parents start coming more, yeah, not that interested. But then when an intruder comes or like the house is on fire, some truly novel experience, AI is wide awake. That's why I like the pupil dilation. So hopefully in the next six months, you'll see me show up some demo of some experiential-based model that has pupils dilating when I throw new things into it. It's, it's you know really interested in the novelty. Uh, I did want to call out something that we talk about language. There is the language of the world when you have like comparisons, like size comparisons and relationships. I think this is something that deep learning 
could do better at. So if I turn something upside down in the frame, or if I shift something, the model, sh that should be a novel experience, the novel. And I know people talk about this, like imagine, you know, being able to imagine what's missing. Um, so I, I think we understand the directions things will go. I just don't know if people are thinking about the right way because we're distracted by these massive models. Can we, can we go bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger? But I feel like they're building these like air balloons in the wrong direction. They're not kind of going back to the basics of, you know, how does my child learn anything? You know, let's say that. Let's hear from you. Oh, you're muted. You're muted, Gina. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, there we go. Uh, better. So um, I don't want to take us in a way off course, but, you know, I've been seeing a lot of what I imagine is hype about quantum computing. I mean, is the fundamental issue, Ben, do you think, the algorithms and if we just get more faster compute power or just it's just the algorithms or do we need a, a fundamentally different hardware architecture what do you think i i don't know if quantum computing will uh, i think the most profound thing i heard about quantum computing is someone who's at google now um they said it won't make our current models run faster it will solve new problems we haven't thought of because I, I haven't done any programming to kind of understand the restrictions. There, some of the ways we approach problems might not work very efficiently on quantum computing. But I do think we're going to need an order of magnitude increase. in like, I'm a huge fan of NVIDIA. NVIDIA up into the right, up into the right. Like Their stuff keeps running faster. But I think as we get into these much smarter systems, like even when I think about like how, how would I design a model to react to a novel event, it... I quickly begin requiring some very high compute. Um, so I, I think we are going to need orders of magnitude more compute to have an AI system that is completely useful. Like I, I like to think of the smart home, the smart home that you don't want to fire, the smart home that you don't want to delete or turn off notifications. And I think we, in the next 10 years, we will all have that, um, which will be super useful. You can actually have a conversation with your home and all of your appliances will be in total command and control. And if something's annoying you, your home will know that. Like if you're annoyed because the house is messy and the home will quickly figure out where the mess came from. It wasn't from you, it was from a kid. And then the home will realize, well, do you want a consequence applied? Well, you know, I know the kids watch TV. I can disable the TV. And, and so you can imagine this type of interaction where you're like, well, absolutely, actually, yeah. You know, you see me yelling at the kids, no TV because the house is messy. The home just says, done, taken care of. But this wasn't like a data science heroic, heroic effort. This was just a natural conversation. The home is not living, not alive. Was it useful to you? Hell yeah, it was useful. You're like, take that, kids. Like the, uh, like the episode of Black Mirror when a lady like has like a miniature version of herself digitized and becomes a smart home for her. It's, yeah, it's a crazy episode. But even, I mean, even up upstream from from all the computation and all the algorithms, we don't understand how this actually works, how this experience actually works. Um, I mean, we can't even model a paramecium or a rose. I mean, much less you know, the human brain uh, or a single neuron. Um, I mean, we'll, we we can model a single neuron. That's what deep learning kind of does. But it, it's it's a tough problem. Uh, Antonio says that he'd go to Ben Taylor University campus location, Utah. Oh. 
Nice. Thanks. Um, like my, my brain spins out of control thinking about in a good way, thinking about the smart home. Cause like how many of us have left our garage open? We're like, darn it. Dang it. I don't want that open. And your home would very naturally, like I would actually like a smart home that just starts closing it for me. Like it figures out rules and if it closes it too soon and it notices, I don't like that. It adapts like a controller, but you can imagine a smart home that just, it escalates into like a queue a potential automation task. Would you like me to turn close your garage when it's been open longer than 10 minutes? I didn't ask for it. It's just been learning and it thinks that's useful. Or like, you know, would you like me to, um, you know, I noticed you have a fitness routine. Would you like me to hold you accountable to that? And, 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 and what I'm saying is I'm not forcing you guys to be held accountable to that. But for me, I might have my own life where I'm like, yeah, Hold me accountable to that. And and then the yeah, so those types of interactions, I think they're they're limitless. Like we could come up with 50 ideas where we would all agree, yeah, that makes your life better, but those ideas are specific to you. And so, that's something I get super excited about. So for for a use case like that, like just exactly what you just described, where are the current limitations falling short? Because I feel like that's something that could, I mean, deep learning could probably solve that, like for sure. Um, I, I think the thing that's falling short is um, if I if I wanted to be critical, I won't call it experimental AI, I'll call it brittle AI. That's where pe people approach problems with horse blinders on and they're so focused on like elderly slip and fall, I see you fall. A better way to think about it is anomaly detection or like all the data that matters. So all these systems, they shouldn't just be consuming video. What time of day is it? What are all the features going on? Like how many people are in the frame? Like they will have so much data, but this doesn't mean it has to stream up to Amazon where you feel violated with a privacy concern. Um, like even today, like I've got this um, AI system and my seven-year-old was like naked in the living room and like that's captured in the TV. I'm like, and my reaction is like, what the hell? Like, why are you naked? Like, why are you naked down here? He's just like on his tablet. Um, but like, I don't want that information leaving my home, but that information can be processed by an AI system. Like, like can you... You guys might think this is dystopian or like this is a future you don't want, but imagine the AI house saying, get your pants back on. Like it's the main floor. It's my kid. He's butt naked. Get your pants back on. Your father's coming. Get your pants back on. And, and the kid is like, no. And then the AI system turns off his tablet. He's like, I hate you. I'll go get my pants on. Um, I don't know. I, I might be too obsessed about this stuff. You guys might start to wonder like, hmm, does this impact childhood development? If, if the, if the rule enforcer is not a human, and I'm sure it does, I'm sure there's some impact there, but whether it's good or bad is unknown, I think. I mean, that's something for you budding psychologists, behavior psychologists out there to test that out. I think that'd be interesting <laughs> like to, to test out. Feel bad for those kids if it uh, fucks them up, but. Well, I just want the laser system that kills fruit flies. Like if it ever sees a fruit fly in my kitchen, yes. it'll be like game over, no humans. And, but you'd have to have super high trust because no one wants to go blind walking to their kitchen. Um, but even just like imagine an AI system that prioritized what order you ate your food. You know, the bananas are going to go bad in three days. Like the AI system already knows that. And it's telling you what you're going to eat for lunch. And it's like, well, you like this sort of but if you don't eat this you're gonna waste a lot of food so it's like it's trying to optimize it's like it reminds me of like the traveling salesman problem it's trying to like optimize like this mixed bag of suboptimal lunches or like breakfast and 
and if you haven't gone shopping to the store then your lunch options are going to get really shitty where it's combining like the worst possible combinations and you're like i can't eat this and your home is saying i know but you need to go to the store i already ordered the pickup because i knew you'd be angry and it's available today at three i looked at your calendar and you're available um tina go for it so um okay so i'm off mute now i put my hand down there we go um yeah so not to um interrupt the kind of meta or larger cognitive um questions computing questions model questions algorithm questions more practical matter because you mentioned amazon and stuff going up to the cloud etc etc um so while you guys were talking earlier i was on the one hand thinking quantum computing and the other hand i'm thinking um iot small devices models on a chip and i've heard of you know this being a thing especially with sensors and actually also i mean probably in a range of thing, areas but for example in environmental monitoring um if you have sensors deployed you know way out in the field someplace obviously you know you're not going to have you know a workstation or something and or any number of other sensors out in the real world, um, you're going to need a really fast response from that sensor to do something. So um, does that, I don't know if that factors into your thinking at all, Ben. I mean, you're talking about something that's a lot bigger. I'm not saying that some small device is going to do all these things, but maybe there's some kind of um, integration there with uh, the hardware and and the algorithms and so on and so forth. So Gina, I think you're exactly right. The way I think about it is all of this inference actually happens on the edge. So you have edge sensors because it's actually too much data. So if you have 50 cameras in your home that are streaming 8K resolution, you actually don't want that to go anywhere really. Like, because that's just a ton of data. So you want edge devices that are deciding if things are actionable. And then like routers, they are escalating them to the main hub and the main hub is what is sentient or like some people think it's sentient, it's making decisions. Um, There is an evolution too. Like you have NVIDIA and companies like that that are trying to make certain AI models run faster. They're trying to change some chip architecture, but the ultimate is to actually make custom silica where you're, you're saying, hey, for this particular use case, we will actually engineer this entire chip. It's actually incredibly limited. Like it can only handle this type of video input. It can only do this task you have no option to program it. Um, and so I think when you get there, then we will be very happy with some of the power consumption. Cause like, cause everything I'm describing, if I have to run that with all these like edge GPUs, even with Jetsons, you're like, okay, like that's actually showing up on your power bill now. Like um, doing all this massive inference in your house is a little hotter because of it all. Um, so I, I think you're exactly right. I think we will get there where you have very specific purpose built but one of the things that surprised me is how easy it is to roll out a new chip because you have like these global foundries. So someone on this call, like if you had funding, you had, I, I'm not sure what the number is. The numbers keep coming down. Like, is it 50 million or 10 million to develop? You don't have to have a fab. You can actually just say, this is what I do. This is the chip architecture. You pay some consultants. They go send it out to TSMC in Taiwan. And here's your chip set that you can like start diving on. Like, Look at companies like Tesla, like they don't have a fab, but they can get these chips made. Um, 
that's something that's always blown my mind. Like what humans on earth design chips? Like I would look at these NAND flash chips and they look like cities. You zoom in on like a scanning electron microscope and they, it's like New York, but probably more comp, much more complicated. And there's some human somewhere that understands all of, you know, they can explain all of it, which I always thought that was insanity. Deep learning is so easy compared to that. My brother-in-law works at Apple. He designs the chips there. Uh, so he does like chip design and chip speed testing. Uh, insane. I don't know how the hell he does it. He studied uh, electrical engineering. Uh, that is nutty. Yeah. yeah. Um, speaking of Silicon Valley, the M1 is insane. I was running uh, uh, 20 iterations of Bayesian search on my M1 on a you know, 4 million row data set. He's using a uh, variation of light GBM. Speaking nice. of silica, uh, ooh. here's some NAND flash. Nice. Wow. Got a wafer there. Yeah. Sad I cracked it. Uh, this is my good job, Ben. We're proud of your wafer. That's like 12. Is that a 12 inch wafer? Uh, 300 I millimeter. So I think, yeah. is that 12 inches? Probably. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think it's 12 inches. I don't know if they're all 12 inches nowadays or if for smaller applications they're doing, uh, you know, like the, they're still using the um, equipment to make smaller wafers. It's It's been a while since I was knowledgeable in this area, but yeah. They're all about those. scale. So I think 350 millimeter was the norm when I was there. I think they're pushing for 400 or 450. Like the, the bigger they can make the wafers, the more... It's so funny because people get so excited about like, oh, the chips are getting smaller. Everyone wants to make them smaller, but the economics are they cost less chemicals to make. And so smaller is a bonus. So I just thought that was funny because I thought I'm so happy they make a, a terabyte micro SD. But the reality is like, yeah, it just took the economics makes sense. So they will always go smaller because it's it's less chemicals and material to make it. But now we're now they're at like the electron limit where yeah. it's there, you know, everything's super problematic now because they're less than 10 nanometers and you count the electrons in your memory cell. We're just getting started with all this stuff. We are at the beginning of infinity with everything. We are really at the beginning of infinity, my friends. Uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up, man. Thank you guys so much for uh, hanging out, Ben. Thanks for uh, bringing on the interesting discussion. Really enjoyed that. You should listen to the interview I did. Everybody, if you're tuning in, uh, it's not released on the podcast yet, but it's live on YouTube. The interview I did with uh, Marcus Dusotoy. He's an Oxford professor. He wrote The Creativity Code. We, I, I love that conversation. Like We talked a lot of philosophy of mathematics and, and things like that. So definitely tune into that. Uh, spoke to the people's data scientist himself, Danny Ma, yesterday. That is on YouTube as well, but it'll be dropped later on the podcast. Shout out to everybody that joined in on LinkedIn. Antonio, Greg, good to see you guys there. Uh, shout out to everybody that came in today. Be sure to tune into the interview I released today with Andy Hunt author of The Pragmatic Programmer, uh, legendary author of Pragmatic Programmer. Uh, it's a great conversation as well. What else? We've got a, got a bunch of really interesting episodes coming up. If you guys don't mind, let me just tell you what's happening in the next few weeks. In the next few weeks, who do I got? I got interviews coming up with, uh, let's see here. I've got, um, next week I'm talking to uh, Christina uh, 
DG Como. She is a uh, industrial philosopher, so that's gonna be great. November twelfth, got the episode with uh, George Farrakhan. November nineteenth, Steve Carindel talking about turning ideas into gold. November twenty sixth, talking to Korush Aliza. We talk about NLP and philosophy. Uh, then December third, uh, Christian Espinoza. We talk about uh, why you shouldn't be the smartest person in the room. Then on December. 10th talking to uh, Dana McKenzie who is co-author of the book of why um, so we get a good conversation there so hopefully you guys get a chance to tune in uh, and if you know if you haven't had enough of me this month realize that there are about uh, 193 episodes published um, that's over you know probably three four hundred hours of content at this point we're just five thousand downloads away from 100,000 downloads so if you haven't listened to any podcasts uh, from the artist of data science, go make up for that. Help us crush that uh, that hundred k. Uh, took you know a little over a year and a half uh, to get this far. Hopefully, we get there by the end of the year. I would love to see that happen. Uh, you guys, take care. Have a good rest of the evening. Happy Halloween to everyone. Thanks for coming by. Remember, my friends, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. <laughs>